Well, I hope you've been enjoying this series through First Chronicles that we've entitled Redemption Reboot. The title, again, as we talked about in the early weeks of the series, calls to mind the fact that First and Second Chronicles are retelling stories that have already been told earlier in the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically in the books of Samuel and Kings. And over the last few weeks, we haven't paid as much attention to the ways in which Chronicles is tweaking or adjusting or making changes to those stories because we don't want to distract from the point, which is that what Chronicles is trying to do is to tell us what the stories mean. But this week, as we get into chapters 18 through 20, there were a couple of really interesting aspects of how the Chronicler handles the material that they're working with that I couldn't help but speak about, but I'm not going to take time for in the message itself as it distracts from where I believe the text is pointing us. But I wanted to share them in this space on this podcast for those of you who are interested in this kind of thing. So there's two things that I want to highlight, both from First Chronicles 20. I encourage you to grab your Bible and follow along here. So First Chronicles 20 begins with this verse, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. That phrase should jump out in our minds because while we may have never heard a sermon on First Chronicles 20, I really don't think that I ever have, uh, and yet I'm going to preach it this Sunday, we have heard sermons on 2 Samuel 11. And 2 Samuel 11 begins exactly the same way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. And that calls to mind for us what's going to come next, which is that David doesn't, in that particular spring, go out to battle. Instead, he stays in Jerusalem, and there, while in Jerusalem, he sees Bathsheba. And we all know what happens from there. It starts a trajectory that covers the next 10 chapters of the book of 2 Samuel. How David's assault and violation of Bathsheba lead to the murder of her husband Uriah, and a judgment from God delivered by Nathan, the same prophet who delivered the promises that we talked about this last Sunday, and that Nathan's judgment is that evil will come onto David's house. And that plays itself out as, in some ways, like father, like son. David's son, Amnon, assaults his half-sister Tamar, whose full brother Absalom then takes revenge on Amnon, killing him and becoming a rebel within David's own household and trying to set up a rival kingdom. And David is forced out of the capital of Jerusalem by his usurping son, whom he then must make war against. And then David's nephew Joab ends up killing Absalom. And David's furious about it. Ten chapters of grief and tragedy wrought through David's household, presumably because... In the spring, the time of year when kings go out to battle, David did not. The author of Chronicles is not unaware of that history. We know that they likely have a copy of Samuel sitting right there, and they're copying much of these three chapters in particular, but the entire book verbatim, but making changes here and there. But this is a big change. They essentially drop more than two chapters of text and says that rather than David didn't go out. Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. At that point, 
The narrative of Samuel picks up with the Bathsheba story. But here it says, Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And the story of the fall of this enemy capital continues. What the chronicler is doing here is not, I think, trying to whitewash the history of David, although the chronicler is at pains at every point of the story to eliminate the things that make David seem less than an ideal king. But the interest here is not simply to pretend that David was an ideal king. Remember that I've said that the book of Chronicles is placed at the end of the Hebrew canon, and I think more and more as I study this book that it is meant to point the audience forward to the ideal king. It is not meant to whitewash history. It is meant to use the high points of history, those moments when God's servants got it right, to point us towards our ultimate hope, which is that God will restore all of us to this ideal state. And what David does here is repeatedly in these chapters, and this is something we will talk about on Sunday, sends out his servants to wage battle. It's striking the number of times in these chapters that David is not the one actually engaged in the fight. And something that we're going to talk about on Sunday is the fact that for the audience of Chronicles, David is not around, and David's descendants are not around to lead Israel into battle and to vanquish and subdue foreign foes. And so the audience might well read stories of David going out to battle and say, that's great, but David's not here. Who's going to kill our Goliaths? And the answer in these chapters, I believe, is David's servants. The analogy for us, where I'm going to take us on Sunday, is that Jesus, David's descendant, is also, in some respect, not on the scene to wage battle against our spiritual foe, the evil one. What are we to do with that? I'm going to suggest that we are to be Joab. We are to lead out in battle, confident that God will give us the victory through his servant Jesus. Now, I mentioned a moment ago who's going to kill our Goliaths. That leads us to the second thing that I want to talk about. And this is more along the lines of a, of a nerdy thing, more than a substantive, uh, significant thing as far as the meaning of the text. We read a few verses down in verse 5 that there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan the son of Jair struck down Lachmi, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There are a number of challenges with this text. One of the things that I pointed out early on in the series is that Chronicles is a book of scripture that challenges our often confident assertion that there are no errors or contradictions within the pages of scripture. But if you flip back to 2 Samuel 21, which is where this text comes from, and this is where we can see that the chronicler is lifting sections in order out of the previous book, we read a similar verse in 2 Samuel 21, 19. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jerah-Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. If the phrase, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam, sounds familiar, it should because it is from easily the most popular Bible story ever told, David and the battle against Goliath, whose spear had a shaft like that of a weaver's beam. Well, those three texts taken together, 1 Samuel 17, the battle of David and Goliath, 
2 Samuel 21 and 1 Chronicles 20 give us a bit of a challenge. 1 Samuel 17 has David killing the giant Goliath. 2 Samuel 21 has Elhanan killing Goliath the giant. But 1 Chronicles 20 has Elhanan killing Lachmi, the brother of Goliath. So who did Elhanan kill? Who killed Goliath? I think the answer is not going to be straightforward and ultimately is not that significant. Goliath and the giants, and this is something that we will talk about, Goliath and the giants in scripture represent a symbol of the opposition to the work of God. Their roots go back to a race called the Rephaim that are talked about in Genesis and particularly in Deuteronomy, where we meet King Og of Bashan. He was the one who had a bed made of iron, likely because of his great size, a wooden bed would not support his great weight. The bed was 13 and a half feet long and as wide as a queen size bed at a time when beds were twin beds. You had a single width couch. And it was because he was a man of great stature, a giant. And these beings, these giants, were often mythologized into being the guardians or the dwellers of the underworld. And so the term Rephaim can refer either to like mythological beings that guard or uh, whose place of dwelling is in the underworld, or simply to giants, to people of enormous stature. And whether we understand that as supernatural in nature or simply uh, something that we see as the phenomenon of gigantism uh, is not clear. But the point is this, that these giants were insulting the God of Israel. They were calling into question God's good promises. That is the consistent theme in these showdowns. Goliath is defying the armies of the God of Israel and David alone stands up to contest him. This brother of Goliath's is doing the same thing in Elhanan's day, and he stands up and strikes him down. And there are other giants that are faced in this passage. In the second Samuel passage, there are four giants. Here, there are three giants. It is important that we not miss the details. But here's what I would propose as the solution, and no one is positive. But what I would suggest is that the passage in First Chronicles preserves an earlier and better reading. And this is one of the interesting things. The author of Samuel is likely using a source, other documents or oral narratives. And the chronicler may also have those at their disposal. And it's likely, in my mind, that the Chronicles version is correct, that Elhanan struck down a brother of Goliath, and that the author of Samuel makes an error and seeing the phrase shaft like that of a weaver's beam and brother of Goliath simply writes Goliath the Gittite and attributes the kill to Elhanan. In full disclosure, there's another stream of thought that says that Elhanan is the one that killed Goliath and Elhanan was from Bethlehem, but that in the creation of David's story, that story gets attributed to David. All of that may seem unsettling to some of you, and I just want to encourage you with this that our faith, once again, there are issues with these texts. I've pointed out these three texts, and they are different. They are saying different things, and something has to be done with that. 
And no answer will ultimately be satisfying if we are looking for satisfaction to mean that we can square it all up in a neat and tidy way. Sometimes that won't be possible. But the text of Scripture is not given to us for the purpose of having an exact, detailed, accurate account of every little thing that happened in these periods of God's work. It is given to us to encourage us that God's purposes and plans for us cannot and will not fail, and that when we are faithful, we enjoy the benefits of that. That is the message of the life of David in all of its forms, and the chronicler writing at this moment in history writes to encourage the people of their time that just because David is not on hand does not mean that the giants they faced in their day were going to carry the day if they stood firm and trusted in God's promises. That is the message that we will be talking about on Sunday. I hope you enjoyed the digression into some of the details of these interesting tidbits around Chronicles. Hope it provokes you to look closer rather than to look away, as I have encouraged us to do the last several years. Until we meet on Sunday, I trust that you will be blessed by the Word of God.